Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Legally, I can charge 6.5% over the, whatever the daily APOR is, and there's a threshold there. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible, and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, I'd check this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and I hope you're having a wonderful week. On the show, we'll give you the best real estate investing advice ever from our best ever guests. Uh, we've had Barbara Corcoran on the show from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, Richard Portad. Recently had Tom Wheelwright on the show, who is the CPA for Rich Dad Poor Dad. Just a phenomenal interview, and I learned a lot from that conversation. And today, we've got a wonderful guest, Ian Flanagan. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you, bud? Doing really well. And thank you for being on the show. Ian has been successfully investing in real estate since 2006 and is focused on building cash flow through what he calls hidden cash flow 
deals. So that's his strategy, and we'll talk specifically what he uh, means by that strategy and and what his approach is. He's based in Dallas, Texas, and uh, you can find him at freedominvestingacademy.com. He's done over 120 deals between wholesaling and seller finance, which is what his main focus is on, going back to that hidden cash flow deal strategy approach. He's a former hairdresser. And he's also a current drummer in in a band called Adam Nunez. And there is no singer in that band, I found out. It's all instrumental, which is pretty interesting in and of itself. So, Ian, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I mean, obviously, I'm a full-time real estate entrepreneur these days. And um, my past career was hairdressing. Um, I did that for over a decade I, mean, I had a very, very successful career. I still miss it. I still cut hair. To, I mean, my wife, my, my family, friends, everybody still kind of hits me up, and I still love it because I can still be creative, and it's a, it's a great, um, it's a way, it's a great way to stay connected with people. Um, but you know, before that, I was in college waiting tables, you know, really just trying to figure things out, and. Um, and I know this sounds kind of cliche, you know, you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki, but I mean, I don't think that there's a real estate investor on the planet that has not read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I realized I was trading dollars for hours and I knew that if I wanted to change that and have a different trajectory in my life moving forward, that I needed to be involved with something else. And I picked the vehicle of real estate. So, you know, I, I was, you know, lower income family growing up, you know, my, uh, I didn't have a whole lot. Um, I, I really kind of put myself out there when I was 14 years old. I, I actually forged my birth certificate to make myself a year older, and I've been working ever since. So I've always had a, a very um, dedicated work ethic. And, and, you know, when I found real estate, it just really – it really just uh, – opened up everything for me. Um, it changed everything in my mind, my life, um, everything that my, my goals, my family, just everything really changed of getting involved with real estate. And, you know, it was really scary in the beginning just because you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I, call, I like to call it the language of real estate, right? Um, there's a certain vocabulary you have to have to be able to have a conversation with people. And when you're just starting out, when you don't have that vocabulary, everything feels kind of scary and you know, it, you, you're kind of holding back because you don't want to make phone calls. You don't want to talk to people just because you don't have that language. So I just made it a point to myself to learn as much as I can. I still learn as much as I can. So regardless of, uh, you know, where you're at as far as your own success, you know, you still want to constantly try to learn new things and find out what's going on that other people are doing, you know, because we're in an information age and technology is changing so fast. So things that were relevant, you know, three, four years ago aren't so relevant today. And there's new technology that's helping people, you know, do what they need to do faster. So that was kind of, that's kind of a 30,000 foot view of myself and my past and kind of where I'm at now. I hope that uh, was sufficient, Joe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's a great start to, to set the groundwork. You said that you know, you've been you're constantly looking at the different technology and educating yourself what are some of the things that you found recently that you've been implementing in your business successfully? Well, like uh, like the Podio platform, um, I haven't really run everything yet, but you know, just the ability to have a piece of technology that you can go in and you can customize for yourself, and then have multiple third-party applications that you can attach to it. So, depending on what your needs are and how you have your systems built. 
Podio is a great platform and I'm still learning. There's so much that that platform can do. So just pieces of technology like that, that you can incorporate other third party technologies to it. So I'm, you know, trying to learn that. There's obviously a lot of people out there that have already built out a lot of applications that you can purchase and just kind of jump in there and get them rolling. But that was one of the biggest ones over the last couple of years that have that I've seen a lot of investors move over to and they really, really like it. They're having great success with it. I'm not familiar with it. What is it and what do you use it for? I, I see I just did a quick Google search whenever you were mentioning it. Uh, and it's a way to collaborate with others on sounds it looks like projects. So how do you use it for real estate? Well, what you can you know you can use it as like a database as well. So you can you know you can attach your squeeze pages to it. So if you have your widget set up, if somebody goes to your goes to one of your sites, if they're a motivated seller and they type their information in, it'll automatically drop them into your system and then it'll it'll drip on them. And it has that CRM already attached to it, so it'll drip on them over time. And then if you're Whatever your teammates are doing, you can I, you can assign certain tasks to them, you know, because we run out of basically virtual offices. So I don't have, you know, we do have a big office, but I don't have my entire team working out of one office because we leverage so many other people to do what we need to do. Um, so I have a broker in Oklahoma City. I have a broker here in, in Dallas. Um, and then we leverage their office, so on and so forth. So we can assign different people different tasks. And basically use it as a CRM for our database. Let's talk about your hidden cash flow deal strategy. When yeah, I watched your video when I went to your website and I noticed you, know, you talked about that. What exactly is that strategy? Well, I call it hidden cash flow because I'm able to go out into the marketplace and buy properties for 85, 90, 90%, you know, 95% of the value. Um, and most investors just overlook that, right? Everyone's trying to get the big equity either to wholesale or to rehab or, or something like that. So it was something that I, I wouldn't say I developed it. It was just an approach that I took and it and it worked really, really well for us. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a combination of um, taking debt subject to doing seller carrybacks, you know, borrowing private capital to be able to buy these properties cash and obviously I have negotiated terms with my lender and then turn around and offering that property to the marketplace with terms. So a down payment and the balance in monthly and to put a spread on the deals as well. So obviously if I'm paying 85 to 95% for a property, then it does not need any work whatsoever. And also I like to identify them in, in stronger markets where I know that I can push the value. So if there's a house that's worth 100, I can pick it up for 85, 88, and then turn around and sell it for 105 on terms. So that's what I call the hidden strategy because nobody's really targeting that that kind of sector. So we're able to go and really target the for rent ads, the for sale by owner ads, a lot of the things that are already online um, and be able to literally just pluck those deals off the market and then turn around and, and, and offer those to the owner occupants, the people, we call them the tenant buyers that are going to be able to give us a down payment and the balance of monthly. And that's what you mean when you say with terms, it's a down payment yes. and then a monthly payment over time? Yes, yes, absolutely. So it's a, I call it a terms acquisition and terms sales strategy. So I'm trying to get, I'm trying to negotiate terms when I, when I acquire, like I said, on a combination of taking over their debt, which is just subject to taking over the payments. You, know, you have to negotiate some type of terms with that seller. If it's free and clear, you can do just a straight seller carryback. 
But, you know, seller financing is it, it, can, it does encompass the subject to aspect of it as well. It's kind of like a hybrid seller carry back because, you know, if they have some equity, then you got to figure out how you're going to get them that equity. Can I put it on a note in second position? Um, can I give them a small chunk now and then have them wait two to three years to get the back end? the back end of their equity out of the deal. So depending on how you negotiate those terms depends on whether or not you can control the asset, then turn around and offer it to the market with seller financing. And in that case, if there was borrowed money into the deal or we took over the debt, then when we sell it, it's called a wrap mortgage, which is just an additional lien. Um, and we're, we're sandwiched in the middle. You know, some people know the strategy is sandwich lease options, but with a lease option, um, you don't necessarily have ownership so you can't transfer the deed or charge interest on the money that's owed to you. Some states, you can still do that. New Mexico, I have a client down there, and they call it real estate contracts. Other states call it contract for deed, where I can sell the property and carry back a note with interest and not give them the ownership yet until they basically make all the payments and then I deed them the property. So with my you know, model in Texas, we actually transfer the deed to that end buyer, create the note, the deed of trust and let just let the cash flow just come in. Can you go through an, an example of that scenario okay. with numbers? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Let's say I've identified a seller and let's just say, for example, they, they own a house free and clear and the house is worth $75,000. And let's say the house does not need any repairs whatsoever. Well, I can essentially come in there and offer them let's say $75,000 times, let's say 88%. So that would be $66,000. So I'm just going to multiply 75,000 times 0.88, which is 88%. So now I'm going to offer them $66,000, but as a sale price, but then I'm going to offer them a down payment. So let's say $5,000. So that brings me to a financed amount of $61,000. Are you with me? Yep. So they're asking 75. I offered them 88% of their asking price, which is right about market value. We know their market, if the market value is 75. So my offer to the seller would be, Mr. Seller, hey, I'll make you an offer on your house, $66,000 as a sale price, but I'm going to give you a $5,000 down payment and then the balance in monthly payments. So the balance is 61000 So I'm just going to take 61000 and divide it by 240 months, which is about 25 years. And then offer them that payment of two fifty four sixteen a month. And my first offer always has no interest because you have to start somewhere, right? If I start at zero and they counter, then I go up from there. Um, and I've had literally people accept offers with no interest. I don't say interest. I just say the balance of monthly payments. When I shoot this offer over to them, if they're interested, they will counter back and then I'll negotiate from there. But see, I call this the A side of the equation. So let's look at the B side real quick. So when I turn around and I sell this house because I know for a fact that I'm going to sell it for more than $75,000 and I know that I'm going to get way more than $250 a month in a, a payment coming in because I want to try to keep the monthly payment close to what the rental value is in that neighborhood. So if it's a $900 a month, average rent in the area, I'm going to try to keep my PITI, principal interest, taxes, and insurance, close to that number. So let's say I'm going to turn around and I'm going to sell this house for $84.9. So I'm going to mark it up. And, and, and literally, people do not balk at the price. You, you'd be surprised. All they care about is that payment. So if it's in an area where the houses are averaging a value about $75,000, you know, marking it up, a little bit, five, six, eight thousand dollars isn't a big deal. 
because if it's in a be- – I wouldn't say beautiful, but if it's in a decent neighborhood, the property does not need any repairs. It's move-in ready. They will take this all day long. So now well, let's run this scenario where I'm going to turn around and I'm going to sell this house for basically 85000 So 849 would be the sale price to my end buyer. And then let's say I'm going to try to get a 10% down payment out of them. So that'd be roughly about $8,000. So we take 849 minus 8,000, and that leaves me a financed amount of $76,900. So then I go over to my handy dandy mortgage calculator and I type in 76,9. And legally, I can charge 6.5% over whatever the daily APOR is. And there's a threshold there. And what the daily APR is, is on a daily basis, there's an interest rate that fluctuates. It's not the prime rate. It's called the APOR rate. So you can Google daily APR and, and get that number. So what we do is, so let's say today if the daily APR is 3.75, I'm going to add 6.4, and that gets me at 10.15. And the reason why I want to do 6.4 is because the federal government has a threshold of what's considered a high-cost mortgage versus a high price mortgage. And if I'm under 6.5 of whatever the daily APOR is, then that is not considered a high cost mortgage. So that's why I calculate it that way. So we're usually right around 10. I've charged as much as 12. Obviously, I've done this with um, investors where it's a non-owner occupied property where I can charge them basically as much as I can get them agreed to because the federal government doesn't really put restrictions on you know, investors, it's like hard money lenders charging through the roof on points and interest to be able to, you know, charge, you know, interest rates to investors. So in this example, we'll do 76900 on a 30-year term at 10.15% interest. And that's going to give me a principal interest payment of $683.39. So now that's what I look at my cash flow. So let's say, for example, if this seller accepted my first offer of 66000 with a $5,000 down payment and the balance of 61000 over 25 years, that's $254 a month. And then I'm going to subtract that from my principal interest of what my buyer is going to pay me, which is six eighty three thirty nine. So I have a net cash flow of $429.23. But here's the neat part too. If I agreed to pay my seller 5000 where do you think I'm going to get the money to pay that $5,000 to that seller? I imagine from the down payment from your buyer. Exactly. So not only did I net $3,000 at closing from my buyer, but I'm also getting $3,000 at closing plus $429 a month net cash flow. And that's why I call this a hidden cash flow strategy because I don't know of anybody else that's doing these types of deals. How do you do the timing of it whenever you've got a phone call into a seller, he or she agrees to the seventy or the $66,000 valuation and purchase price? Logistically and from a timing standpoint, how does that work out with the end buyer? Okay. Well, you know, using that purchase and sale agreement to your advantage is, is so powerful. And, and I think when you're starting out or you don't really understand how to write it and use it to your advantage. Um, I like to say that there's a reason why there's blanks all in the contract because everything is negotiable. So I try to push out the closing date as far as I can. If there's a tenant in the property, I typically will not close on it 
if they're on a month-to-month type of uh, agreement with their seller, I'll basically put the property under contract. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to sell the house to the person living in it. And if they won't, don't want to buy it or they can't afford to come up with the funds to do it, then they basically got to move out. So during my contract period, I'm marketing the property very, very heavily. But we've gotten to the point where once you've done a lot of these deals, you've built a big buyer's list. So literally, as soon as I get the green light on a property, you know, my sales team is on it. They have the buyers out there and typically the first weekend or two, we'll get it under contract. But there has been times where I've made offers on the MLS and I've bought properties at 85, 90%, but I bought them cash, but I had terms with that cash with an investor, a private lender. So if I'm borrowing capital to buy houses cash and I have a first lien that I have to pay my lender on, and then I will turn around and do the exact same strategy where as soon as I get the property under contract, I'm trying to line the buyer up. Sometimes I can double close them. And then sometimes I'm going to have to borrow the capital to close on the property, you know, get the insurance policy, get the utilities on, get it cleaned up, and then I market the property for sale. And then a week or two or three or however long it takes us to find the buyer, negotiate it, get it under contract, get them processed, and then close them so I can recoup that down payment fund. So it, it literally just depends. So if you don't have access to private capital or anything like that, then you just know that you need to line your buyer up and close them on the same day. So you can stretch that from 30 to 45 to 50 days if if you need to. And that is a lot of time to find a buyer and, and get them under contract and get them ready to close. If you don't have a buyer and uh, you do have to you know, borrow the money or you use your own money to close on it, then you're responsible for paying the monthly payments and then the down payment, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then the other associated costs? Yep. Yep. And we can pull that off a line of credit. Um, you know, and that's the thing about being an investor is you always have to have multiple ways to do deals. Um, yes, there are no, no money down deals. And this is a, pretty much, it can be a no money down deal other than if um, you're putting money in escrow, $100. We usually write $500. And then we'll give them a $50 non-refundable check as an option consideration to give us in Texas, there's a, there's a section on our Texas real estate contracts that basically give us the termination option, which is an inspection period. If you don't have one of those on your contract, then you can add it as an addendum, um, just like your inspection period. So if you want to have 10 days to inspect the property and you have the right to terminate the agreement for any reason whatsoever, then you want to write that into your contract. So during our inspection period is when we are marketing the property heavily. But we typically market, you know, every weekend or every other weekend in the areas that we're buying. So we're constantly bringing new buyers into our database. You mentioned high cost mortgage and high price mortgage. Can you again, just mention which one you want to be under and why? Yeah. And you can get this information from um, consumerprotectionfinance.gov. And anybody out there that's wanting to do mortgages or, or carry back notes and all that, there's a lot of misinformation that's on the internet and a lot of misinformation from a lot of other people that's saying, oh, you can't do that. That's illegal, you know, so on and so forth. But a high-cost mortgage is basically when the interest rate is high, there's a threshold of what the government considers high cost. And like I said, you can read about this on the consumerprotectionfinance.gov site. And for us to stay under what's considered a high-cost mortgage, we just make sure that we're writing our interest rates under 
6.5% over what the daily APOR is. And then the high price mortgage, what is that? Basically, it's the difference in threshold. If you have a high interest rate, it's considered high cost. If you have you know, an interest rate that's not over that daily APOR, then it's high priced. Got it. Got it. And uh, if you do go above that 6.5% of the daily APR, what is that? Is that illegal? No, it is legal, but usury is right now is 11.99. So there's just a HUD class that the buyers would have to take. And it's just an additional expense that they have to go through. And they can do it online, over the phone, or they can actually physically go into. And it's just a, you know, HUD, you know, which, which is a government program, has a, a class that owner-occupants that are required to take if they are getting in them if they are getting into a high cost mortgage. So for us to stay under the radar, we just write it just underneath that. And that's something that we learned over time. And obviously when you're doing a lot of volume, you want to stay right in with the regulations. And and I know a lot of people are thinking about Dodd Frank or, or you know, most people don't understand what Dodd Frank is. It's basically a federal regulation that basically says that there needs to be a standard for underwriting. So if someone's going to go get an FHA mortgage or get underwritten for conventional or anything like that, that there's a a black and white standard, which is the debt to income ratios. So us as being small lenders, investors, we can still loan people, you know, basically put them in properties, but we have to process them as if they were getting processed like a FHA or conventional type of mortgage. And that's when we use a, a licensed loan originator to process the borrower. And it's basically just proving that the borrowers have the ability to repay the loan. So you remember back in the past, anybody that could walk into a bank and fog a mirror, they could do stated income loans. Basically, no document underwriting is what created the housing bubble. And when it all came crashing down, the federal government said, okay, Dodd-Frank is the new requirement that all lenders have to follow, which is basically just prove that your borrowers have the ability to repay. Two years of tax returns, two years of income statements, you know, work history, so on and so forth. You know, not giving people loans with a debt to income ratio of, you know, something just outrageous. So us as small lenders is what we're considered. The federal government has a threshold of twenty-five million in assets or less and does five hundred originations or less. So we still have to follow the guidelines that the big boys do. The, you know, the Chase, the Bank of America. So when you walk into one of those institutions and you put, you know, your credit on the line to apply for a mortgage, they're gonna, there's going to be a standard of how they're going to underwrite you because they're selling those notes to Fannie and Freddie. So there has to be a, a black and white standard, a debt to income ratio of somewhere between the 43 to 48 percent of the back end. But us as small investors, we can make the decision of whether or not we want to allow someone. So they can have some beat up credit. I'm not so concerned about that. But for us, it's skin in the game. If they don't have down payment funds and they don't have job history or anything like that, then we're not going to put them in a property. But they can have beat up credit. But us as small lenders, we still follow the guidelines of what Dodd-Frank says we have to. So we just make sure that we process them. Ian, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Get educated. Don't let your experiences, I mean, your experiences are obviously how you learn and grow, but you can literally, you can shave off years of your your success curve by just getting educated. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. 
All right, first a quick word for our best ever partners. Crowdfunding, you've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. And what's the best ever book you've read? Gosh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. And best ever listeners, I know I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we've had Robert on the best ever show already. Just Google Robert Kiyosaki, Joe Fairless, and his episode will come up. And then Tom Wheelwright was on the episode also, or on the show also. Definitely recommend checking out his interview. Just to, I, I, I think you'll learn a lot from it. I'll just say that. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? Hiring a mentor that we worked on mindset for, for three months. There was a book called... Um, the Trophy Effect by Michael Nitty, um, and it was about rewarding your mind um, for the positive attributes and the things that you do on a daily basis. Because our entire life, we've been told sit up straight, don't do this, you know, show up on time, do all these things. So you have a I wouldn't say negative kind of connotation with that, but that was probably the biggest investment in my personal growth that I've ever made. For three months, what did you do to work on your mind besides read that book? I did daily exercises, so I literally had to journal everything that I did on a daily basis, and what we were doing was, he called it, we were basically reprogramming the mind on on all the positive things, and just rewarding yourself mentally, because it boosts your confidence, it boosts everything, Um, so journaling that, um, and it can be anything from just holding a door for a woman at a grocery store or or tapping the brakes to let somebody in just those little bitty tiny little things on a daily basis it really kind of helps me to calm down stay focused and just stay positive moving forward so it was very powerful so you were journaling all the positive things that were happening in in your day yes from everything from just simple 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 things to whatever it could be you know whatever it could be just focus on the positive best ever deal you've done Oh man, uh, probably a, a wholesale deal that kind of fell into my lap and making 25 grand on it. So not putting any money into marketing, getting a you know a, a referral. For some reason, I, I was able to buy a lot of probate deals. I bought a couple and I just started getting them referred to me. So probably making 25 grand on a on a referral off a probate deal that I didn't have a dime a dime of my own money into it. Best ever way you like to give back? I like to basically just share my knowledge of what I do on a daily basis and what took me from zero to be able to do multi-million dollars in real estate. Um, just taking that time to really share with people and, and help ed- educate other folks. Because I remember when I was learning the business, I call it a big cloud. There's this big cloud of confusion that comes over your mind. And when you don't understand the lingo and the terms and the strategies, it's 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 really difficult to kind of move forward. So helping other people understand the strategies and really clarifying that for them. So I really love doing that with folks. What would you say is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate so far? Oh, that's a good one. Um, probably buying a house in an unfamiliar market just because I could. <laughs> what, 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 what market was it and what was the result of it? Basically in Cook County, Chicago, um, we went into a deal on a on a on a partnering program type deal, and uh, and I just I wasn't knowledgeable on that market. Yes, there's tons of pockets of in Chicago in that area, 
that are great, but the one that we ended up buying was just not it was it wasn't a good neighborhood. And um, I just didn't do enough due diligence on the area because we were getting it at such a huge discount. That's probably one of the biggest reasons. But, um, you know, and carrying that property for 10 months before we unloaded it. I mean, it just, you know, buying properties in unfamiliar markets and you have to understand exactly what you're doing. And I kind of broke some of my own rules, too. So it was definitely a learning experience. And what's the best ever place to reach you? You can do that on, on our website. The blog site is great. I post a ton of videos on there. Freedominvestingacademy.com forward slash blog. Jump in the conversation. If you have questions about any of the content that I've posted, you know, jump in the conversation there. I'll, I'll definitely respond to you. That's probably the best spot. Ian, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and talking about your business model it's clear that you have a mastery of what you do just in the way you explain it and break it down and talk through the different scenarios. And, and then I'm really glad that you, you went through the case study with, with us together with the $75,000 purchase price, or excuse me, that $75,000 home that you purchased for sixty six and ended up selling for eighty four nine, and then working out the monthly payments for what you pay the seller and what you pay the uh, or what you're being paid by the buyer and the spread you're making on a monthly basis and then also the down payment spread that you're making whenever those two come together and and you're able to do that uh, and, and I'm glad that we also talked through the you know the, the potential risks involved with doing the deal not having a buyer if you don't have the buyer then you're gonna have to float that money until you do find a buyer. So really, there's a lot of marketing that's involved that's really important to, to be uh, on top of and to proactively do before you even uh, make an offer on a property to buy and talk to the seller. So thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice. And we'll talk to you soon. You got it, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. 